Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. The big news for today was the release of the initial estimate for Q1 GDP. And those of you who are regular listeners to my podcast will recall that I have been warning for some time that I thought there was a good chance that Q1 GDP could end up being negative. In fact, when the estimates first started coming in, even the Atlanta Fed barely had GDP as positive. I think it started out maybe 0.2 or 0.3. They gradually ratcheted it up. But I continue to think that there was a strong chance that we would in fact see a negative print for Q1 GDP which would mean we were halfway into a recession because to technically qualify for a recession, you need two quarters of negative GDP growth. And so if Q1 was negative, well, we would be halfway to a recession because if we got another negative print in Q2, we would be there. Well, the estimate for Q1 was for 1.1% growth, not a very strong quarter. And of course, for all the talk, about how red hot this economy is, how this thing is supercharged. We have this blazing economy. Why were the estimates so subdued? I mean, 1.1% is hardly something that you want to brag about. I mean, how could an economy that's supposedly so strong only be growing at 1.1%, especially when the fourth quarter of last year saw 6.9% GDP growth? So very strong in Q4 of 2021, going all the way down to 1.1 would represent a rapid deceleration in GDP. Now, some people are saying, well, it's because, you know, we had the Delta variant was screwing it up or we had the Ukraine war. But I mean, that really wasn't that big a factor in Q1. I think that's going to be a bigger factor in Q2 
But of course, they're always looking for excuses to rationalize why the economy isn't as strong as they think. Anyway, there was a pretty wide range of estimates. The consensus went from a low of just up 0.2 to a high of plus 1.9. The number actually came in at minus 1.4. So not only was it a negative print, but it was a pretty decent number. It was actually down by more than they expected it to rise. Because even if you put a negative sign where they thought a positive sign was gonna be, you still had to add to the negative because minus 1.4 is a bigger move below zero than a positive 1.1. Now, a couple of things should immediately jump out when you see such a big negative on the GDP. One factor in particular is the fact that the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell in particular has constantly hung his hat on the fact that we have this super strong economy and that's why the Fed can get away with hiking rates this time and not cause a recession because apparently the economy is so much stronger now than it was in the past when the Fed had to hike rates and then ultimately cause a recession because now the economy is much stronger. We have this red hot labor market. The economy can withstand these rate hikes. So the Fed is not concerned. It can vanquish the inflation monster, no problem. It has the tools. It's gonna aggressively jack up interest rates but the economy is gonna be impervious because it's so strong. Well, if the economy is so strong, why is it contracting? How is a negative 1.4% GDP a strong economy? In fact, I don't know when you can point to a time where the Fed was hiking rates following a negative GDP quarter. I mean, normally, if you just had a quarter like this, the Fed would be thinking about cutting rates to try to preemptively prevent a recession. Instead, they're going to get aggressive, at least compared to what they've done in the past, and start jacking up rates. So if we already have one negative quarter, and that's with interest rates at 25 basis points, if the Fed really ratchets up interest rates in Q2, well, doesn't it stand to reason that GDP in the second quarter will be even lower than GDP in the first quarter when the economy is going to have to contend with much higher interest rates? Of course. So you would have to say the odds favor a recession. It's probably better than a 50-50 chance at this point that the economy is in a recession, and we'll know that for sure when we get the second quarter numbers, yet the Fed is just starting the rate hiking campaign. I mean, we barely got one quarter point rate hike under the Fed's belt. It's got a lot more rate hikes to go, and we're already almost in a recession. Normally, when the Fed starts hiking rates, the economy is blazing hot. You're getting big GDP prints, and that's what's causing the Fed to hike because they're worried that if the economy is so strong, well, inflation is coming, and they want to preemptively kind of clamp down on it. Well, we don't have a blazing hot economy. We really have an ice cold economy. Just look at the GDP, yet the Fed is just starting to raise rates anyway because we have inflation not in a strong economy. We have inflation in a weak economy. We have stagflation, which is why Powell did not answer the question that was posed to him in that recent roundtable discussion at the IMF when he was asked, what are you going to do if the economic numbers become materially weaker, yet inflation is still above target? 
are you going to keep hiking? Well, Powell didn't answer that question. Well, pretty soon we're going to know the answer because the economic numbers are deteriorating. They're getting much weaker and the Fed is still claiming it's going to hike. And the Fed, of course, is in a very precarious position here when it comes to their credibility because the Fed is basically ignoring this negative GDP print and is claiming, well, the economy is still strong. Forget about the fact that it's contracting. It's actually really strong. We're not worried about a recession. We're going to keep hiking rates. Well, what happens if we end up in a recession? What happens to the Fed credibility? Because after all, they've got everything wrong. First, they said there's no inflation. Then they said inflation is transitory. Then they admit they got that wrong. And now they see this negative GDP number. And basically, they say that's transitory too. Clearly, they don't expect a second negative quarter of GDP. So they expect this first quarter to be transitory and not repeated. Well, if they're wrong and we get another negative print, then we are in a recession. The Fed said we wouldn't go into recession. And so they would have got that wrong too. They would have got inflation wrong. They would have got a recession wrong. Why would they have any credibility left? Why would anybody listen to them? So that is the risk they run if they continue to hike rates based on this false belief that the economy can take it and it's not going into recession. What the Fed should be saying, if it was going to level with the public and the markets, which it won't, is yes, we're going into a recession, but we're hiking interest rates anyway. We have to put out this inflation fire, even if it means putting the economy into a recession. See, that would be honest, but they're not going to say that. They want to pretend they can have the best of both worlds. They want to pretend they can put out the inflation fire without starting a fire in the economy, that the economy is going to be fine. That is a lie, but they lose their credibility. Now, at some point, they may have to reverse course before we get that negative print if the economic data continues to be weak and now they have to quickly change gears before the recession is official and they lose credibility for that reason. But of course, if they have to change gears and do a pivot, then they lose credibility again. So the Fed's credibility is hanging in the balance, but I don't I don't really care which way the scales tip, the credibility is gonna be lost and that has big implications. But there's already evidence that the economy is weakening apart from just what should be obvious from higher interest rates. I mean, one glaring example is in the real estate market. Look at what is happening to mortgage refinances. Look at what's happening to home sales. They are collapsing. We got some news on pending home sales yesterday. They had a big drop in February, down 4%, but down another 1.2% in March. And one of the big problems, of course, is mortgage rates that continue to rise. Look at the data on mortgage applications that we got yesterday. The purchase index was down 8%, and that's following a 3% decline the week before. And the refi index was down 9%, following an 8% decline the week before. Mortgages and refinances are plunging. And this has major implications for the economy. First of all, Wells Fargo just announced major layoffs in its home lending business. Why? Well, because people aren't able to do any refis. So they don't need all these mortgage agents if people can't refinance their mortgages. Because where are mortgage rates? Five and a half percent, something like that. 
The mortgage interest rate is now so high in relation to where it's been that there's nobody who can now refinance their mortgage into a lower rate because everybody's got a better rate than what they can get now. And that refi lifeline has been a major lifeline for the economy because it's given households a source of income because you only refinance your mortgage if the result is a lower payment. And if homeowners are able to lower their payments through a mortgage refi, then they have extra money to spend because they're not spending it on their mortgage. They have more money to go shopping or whatever. And that additional spending goes into GDP. It also helps employment in the industries that are the beneficiaries of that spending. So this has been helping a bubble economy, an economy based on consumer spending. If consumer incomes are freed up from having to make mortgage payments, they have more money to buy other things. Well, Households can't do that anymore. Whatever your mortgage is, you're stuck. You're not going to be able to reduce it. And in fact, for a lot of people, their mortgages are going to be going up because you still have a lot of adjustable rate mortgages out there. I'm not sure the exact percent, maybe something like 15, 20% of the mortgages are adjustable. And they're not necessarily adjustable every year. A lot of people took out five-year fix where after five years it adjusts. Well, there are a lot of people that did that five years ago. And now they're getting up to their adjustment period and their rate is going to adjust way up. And now they're going to have to start spending more money making their mortgage payments, which means now they have less money to buy food, less money to buy gas. Of course, food and gas cost even more. So chances are they're going to have to cut back on other discretionary items, which is why a lot of these consumer discretionary stocks have been having so much trouble. But we already have this anecdotal evidence of a weaker economy. Even more news today, weakness in manufacturing. The Kansas City Fed Manufacturing Index was supposed to come out at 39. That was going to be an improvement over 37 in March. Instead, the April number was just 25, which was way below the consensus range, which went from 35 to 40. So there's ample evidence that the economy is much weaker than everybody thought. And that is especially true when you look at the GDP number that confirms this. Now, of course, one of the biggest factors driving the GDP down was America's record trade deficit. We actually got the merchandise trade deficit. Now they call it the goods deficit. We got the advance estimate for March. So this was the final month of the third quarter. And this definitely weighed on the number. The expectation was for a deficit of $105 billion, And that would have been an improvement on the record $106.6 billion that was reported for February. Now, that number was actually revised slightly lower, so it wasn't 106.6, as we were originally told. It was only 106.3, which was still a record based on the deficit of the past. Now, remember, this is just goods. This doesn't include our surplus in services that reduces the overall deficit, but this is the big deal. This is the manufactured stuff. Remember, when Donald Trump ran for office to make America great again, it was because of our merchandise trade deficit. It was manufacturing. He campaigned to make America great again by rebuilding our industrial base, our manufacturing, because we were losing on trade because of these big trade deficits. Well, the March number, not only did it not contract, 
the way the experts expected, but it skyrocketed to 125.3 billion, shattering the old record miles above the consensus range, which went from a low of 103.7 billion to a high of 106.6 billion. This is a horrific number. I mean, nobody has ever seen anything like this number. I mean, the only thing more amazing than this number is the market reaction because the dollar went up. I mean, once upon a time, a number like this, not like we've ever seen a number like this, the dollar would be killed. Instead, the dollar went up. Gold got hammered on this news. Nothing that should have happened did happen. The markets are still completely clueless. Normally, the currency of a nation with such a horrific trade deficit, its currency would be punished because that's the way to get rid of the deficit. The currency crashes and now you can't afford all the imports anymore. And now your exports get a lot cheaper to foreigners and it helps bring your trade back into balance. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But America is not being disciplined the way a normal country would because we have the reserve currency. You see, how did we pay to import $125.3 billion worth of stuff? We paid for it with dollars. We imported stuff and we exported dollars. See, dollars are America's greatest export, except they're worthless. We just print them. We create them out of thin air. They have no value. The stuff that we're getting has real value. You need factories, you know, machines, workers, land, all sorts of materials and are go into the production of finished goods that Americans are importing. And what are we giving our trading partners? Digits that we create out of thin air. Why do they do that? beats the hell out of me. I mean, what is the world doing with all these dollars? What are they going to do with the $125.3 billion they just earned? I mean, I know what we're going to do with all the stuff we just bought. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to have fun. We're going to use all these products to make our lives better. What is the world going to do with all this paper? Right? Well, they're just going to hold on to it. They're going to buy more of our paper. But the more they buy, the less it's worth. Eventually, it has to collapse. Right now, the dollar is benefiting from this flight to safety, from this cleanest dirty shirt in a hamper, from problems in Europe, problems in Japan. I'll get to Japan again a little bit later in the podcast. But this is a huge bubble. It can only end in disaster. The higher the dollar rises, the more spectacular the collapse is going to be once reality sets in. When you're running a business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. Wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination, minimum wage laws, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. 
Bambi was created specifically for small business owners. There you can get a dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just 99 bucks a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from one of your biggest liabilities to one of your biggest strengths. You'll get your own dedicated HR manager who will be available by phone, email, or for real-time chat. You can talk about anything from onboarding to terminations. They will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day and do it all for just $99 a month. Best of all, it's month to month. There are no hidden fees. You can cancel anytime. So go to Bambi.com slash goal right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Getting back to these numbers, look at how the trade deficit grew. We did have an increase in both imports and exports, but imports grew by 11.5%. Exports only grew by 7.2%. And of course, our imports are a much bigger number because we have a deficit. So we grew the bigger number by 11.5% and we grew the smaller number by 7.2%. But of course, a lot of that increase is not due to volume. It's due to price because this is not adjusted for inflation. So when we're talking about the trade deficit going up to 125 billion from 106 billion, we're talking about the prices. Now, yes, maybe we imported more, but we definitely paid more because the stuff that we were importing in February, the same stuff cost a lot more in March. So a lot of this is simply evidence of massive inflation. But of course, the inflation affects the price of our imports plus the price of our exports. Plus, I've talked about this constantly. Export prices are actually rising more than import prices because inflation in the U.S. is higher than inflation outside the U.S. That's why our exports are increasing by a faster rate than our imports. But despite that, our exports only went up by 7.2% because of volume. So it's a bigger increase in volume on imports than on exports, which ultimately evidences a weak U.S. economy because we're incapable of exporting enough to cover the cost of our imports. And that, of course, weighs down on the GDP and exposes the farce of the U.S. economy. And of course, all sorts of articles that were written, and you can read them on the internet. I'm not going to quote any particular one right now, but this is typically how trade deficits are covered. You will look at a lot of articles about this trade deficit as being evidence of a strong U.S. economy. They're saying this just shows that Americans have a voracious appetite for imports. Our economy is growing so fast. We're buying a lot of stuff. And because our economy is stronger than everybody else's, we're sucking in all these imports. And so these trade deficits merely evidence America's strong economy, except that's a bunch of nonsense. Strong economies produce stuff. They don't simply consume stuff. If we really had a strong economy, we wouldn't just be buying stuff. We would be making this stuff we're buying. In fact, we would be making so much stuff that we'd have extra and we'd be able to sell it to other people whose economies aren't strong enough to make what we could make and we would have a trade surplus. It's a trade surplus that evidences strength. A deficit evidences weakness. This is George Orwell doublespeak. This is everybody trying to convince the public that something bad is actually good. That's why Donald Trump was able to win on that formula because he told the truth about how bad America's economy economy was and he pointed to these big trade deficits and a lot of Americans said yeah he's right our industry has been hollowed out we're a shadow of what we used to be 
that was a winning formula for Trump to ride into the White House. Of course, once he got to the White House, he didn't do anything about the trade deficit, but make it worse. He pretended that the trade deficit was the result of bad trade deals and he was going to renegotiate them. Well, all he really did is renegotiate the names. The deals didn't really change so much as the names, but putting a lipstick on a pig doesn't change the nature of what you got. And the bottom line is the trade deals weren't the problem. Although I didn't like any of those trade deals, I want free trade and free trade is easy. One piece of paper, free trade, no regulations, right? All of these trade deals restricted free trade. But the underlying reason for the trade deficit was not the deals. It was the fact that our economy was unproductive. We were not as efficient as our trading partners. Too many rules, too many regulations, too high taxes, not enough savings, not enough investment, artificially low interest rates. There were a lot of reasons that we had trade deficits, none of which were actually attacked by Trump. All he tried to do is cosmetically rename the trade deals and then pretend that he fixed our problem, even though the problem got worse. Of course, it would have got worse if Hillary Clinton had been president and it continues to get worse under Biden's watch. But the media still doesn't understand the gravity of this problem as evidenced by the coverage in the media of the news of this unprecedented, record, horrific merchandise trade deficit, except the only thing that probably tops the coverage of the trade deficit for economic insanity is the coverage of the GDP numbers. Because you might have expected the media to come out and say, oh, wait a minute, whoa, this is bad news. We were told we had this strong economy, but look, we actually have halfway to a recession. We actually got a decline. We're 1.4% down. But no, I am going to read you a headline from the New York Times. I am not making this up. Just Google it if you doubt me. This is a New York Times headline. GDP report shows U.S. economy shrank, masking a broader recovery. Say what? So the U.S. economy shrinking is actually masking a broader recovery. So we have a broad recovery. The economy is really strong. It's just that you can't see the strength because it's hidden behind this weak economy because we have a negative GDP. Now, what the hell are they talking about? If we have minus 1.4% GDP, how does that mask a strong economy? Well, according to the New York Times and just about every newspaper that covered the GDP that came out, the economy is great. It's just that pesky trade deficit. And if it wasn't for that trade deficit, we would have had a really strong economy because trade deficits subtract from GDP. Now, trade surpluses, well, they add to GDP, but we don't have a surplus. We have a record deficit. And so that means a record subtraction from our GDP. So what the New York Times and every other reporter is saying is that, hey, we have a strong economy. Look at how much money our consumers are spending. They're out there shopping like crazy. I mean, they are just doing the heavy lifting. They are buying and buying and buying. They are relentless. We have this strong consumer economy and it's broad, it's widespread. Now, of course, a lot of the reasons that consumers are spending so much is because everything they're buying costs so much. So they're just paying more, not buying more. But forget about that. I mean, don't expect the New York Times to get that. But the New York Times says, hey, we're out there spending, so everything is good. Just forget about the guy behind the window, this trade deficit. Let's just forget that that exists and we have a strong economy. Except you can't forget that the trade deficit exists. Maybe the New York Times doesn't understand what the D stands for in gross domestic product. D is for domestic. 
and what you're measuring is the output of the U.S. economy. That's why you subtract your trade deficit. Because if you're buying stuff that was made abroad, well, you're not measuring the domestic economy. You're measuring the foreign economy. We're not supposed to be picking up the Japanese economy or the Chinese economy or the Korean economy or any of these other economies. We're focusing on the U.S. economy. So if we have a trade deficit, we got to minus that out because we can't count the stuff that we bought that we didn't make. We just bought it. That stuff doesn't evidence strength in our economy. It evidences the strength in the economies of the countries that made the stuff that we bought. That's why trade surpluses get added to GDP because even though that stuff is not consumed in America, right? If we export something to Germany and the Germans consume it, that spending doesn't show up in our GDP, but the manufacturing does because we made the stuff over here. And so you add the surpluses, you subtract the deficits, and that's how you get your gross domestic product. So to say, well, let's just ignore the trade deficit destroys the whole concept of GDP. So you can't say, oh yeah, we had a great GDP, except for this trade deficit. No, it's, you know, maybe it'd be kind of like, well, what's your GPA? Well, you know, if you don't count the F I got in math or the F I got in science, I got straight A's, right? You could just pull out any bad grades you got and say my GPA, you know, was great, but it's a grade point average. You're supposed to average in all of your grades. You just can't throw out a couple of grades and then claim you got a 4.0. You can't take out the trade deficit and say, this was a great economy. We have a broad-based recovery. We have a bubble. That's what the trade deficit is showing. This isn't real economic strength. This is a massive bubble. And when Powell is saying, hey, we got this great economy so we can raise rates, we have a lousy economy. The trade deficit proves it. The budget deficit prove it. If we had a strong economy, we wouldn't have these huge deficits. We have these huge deficits precisely because the economy is weak. And look at the stock market. Look at the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000. Already in bear markets, look at all these stocks that are hitting new lows. This doesn't happen when the economy is good. Normally, when the Fed starts hiking rates, the market is near the highs. We're not already in a bear market. I mean, sometimes when the Fed is finally finished hiking rates, you're in a bear market. Not when they start hiking rates. If they start hiking rates and we're already in a bear market, imagine how big this bear market is going to be when they finally finish hiking rates. But speaking about the markets, how did the markets even react to this horrific news that the U.S. economy unexpectedly shrank during the quarter? Well, they rallied. I mean, it wasn't an immediate huge rally, but later in the day, we got a big rally and the Dow finished up better than 600 points. That's 1.85%. S&P even stronger, up 103 points, almost 2.5%. The NASDAQ up 1.85% and the Russell 2000 up 1.8%. Now, earlier in the day, the Russell 2000 made a new 52-week low before that late-day rally brought it into positive territory. And there were a lot of stocks that were getting clobbered today. Kathy Wood Arc Innovation hit a new low for the move. At one point today, it was down better than 5%. It got to $45.89 before recovering in that big rally, but not enough to recover into positive territory. The ETF ended up down on the day, down 1.39% at 48.87. A couple of its holdings under pressure. Tesla continues to move lower. 
Although again, ending well off the lows of the day, down 2.71%. That was following yesterday's big decline. But the debacle du jour for the ARK Innovation ETF was Teladoc, which is the second largest holding in the Kathy Wood ARK fund. It was down 40% on the day. At one point during the day, it was down better than 50%. That's her number two position. You know, her other big position, I think number three, Coinbase, also continues to hit new 52-week lows. Again, closing off the lows, but still down 2.4% today. You know, when the ARK fund was on its lows today, it was down better than 70% from its high. That is a huge decline. There is no end in sight. There are going to be more Teladoc blow-ups coming for this portfolio. It is still going down. It's going down, I think, at least 90%. And when that happens, Kathy Wood and all her buddies better lawyer up. Because I spoke about that on this podcast. I think they're all going to get sued. Because I heard Kathy Wood on CNBC doing interviews, basically violating SEC rules. Not that I'm a big fan of these SEC rules. I'm just pointing out that she violated them, which is going to be a problem. And I think some of these contingency mass tort lawyers, whoever, they're going to smell blood when they go after them. But she basically was telling potential investors that her fund is going to give 50% returns per year for the next five years. I mean, not guaranteeing those returns, but effectively, it sounded like she was guaranteeing them. She was promising them. You never want to talk about that. You never want to throw out numbers and say, yeah, my fund is going to go up 50%. I mean, even 20% would be a stretch or 10%, but then say every year. But not only did she exaggerate the returns publicly, but she understated the risk. She kept talking about how low risk her fund was, how she was a value manager, how her fund was less risky than the S&P, that the people who were buying these old school companies with earnings and dividends, they were the ones that were taking risk because their stocks were going to be disrupted by these new innovative companies that she was buying. So she was exaggerating the gains, downplaying the risk, hardly a balanced presentation of risk reward. The lawyers are going to be all over that. And basically, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of small investors, you buy that stock, you got a free put right? Heads you win, tails sue Kathy Wood, Arky Innovation. Hey, the reason I bought it is because she guaranteed that I would make money. She told me it wasn't a risk and I believed her. And so I put my money in and I lost all my money. And now I want it back because she lied to me. She misrepresented. Look, this is going to happen. You know, (laughs) I've been saying this the whole way down because I knew that this fund was going to collapse. I knew that all these stocks were way overpriced and she was way overhyped particularly on CNBC. She was like some kind of goddess, a a guru. This was all part of the cult that investing was turned into, gambling, meme stocks, crypto, all of that. She is the poster gal for everything that's wrong with investing. And she is going to be the face of this collapse. But some of the big tech stocks were actually up, just not the ones that Kathy Wood owns. Facebook came out with better than expected earnings after the bell yesterday. And so Facebook rose almost 16% today. And I think that helped lift the overall stock market. Now, also, I do think that the negative GDP print 
probably got some people to think, hey, wait a minute, maybe the Fed won't be as aggressive as we think. Maybe they will back off a bit. And so that probably helped the stock market, but it didn't help the gold market that much or gold stocks, even though they were up today, you would think that they would have been up a lot more if the markets really perceived that the Fed was going to have to backtrack on its tightening due to this new information about economic weakness. In fact, I think the main thing that was propping up the markets and restraining gold was the strength in the dollar, in particular, the weakness in the Japanese yen. The dollar index hit a new high for the move. We closed at 103.67, and the weakest currency in that index was the Japanese yen. Japanese yen down 2%, sinking to a new 20-year low above 130 This is basically a 22% or so decline in the value of the Japanese yen year to date. That is a massive decline in a short period of time in a major currency. And I've been talking about the problems for the Japanese yen. I highlighted it in one particular podcast regarding everybody eventually turning Japanese and the problem for Japan because they're trying to control the yields on the 10-year Japanese government bond because there's so much debt They're trying to keep the yields down, but the only way they can do that is to keep printing money. Now, they justified that in the past because they claimed inflation was too low and they needed higher inflation. Well, now inflation is picking up and they're pursuing the same policy because they're in a dilemma because they now have so much debt by trying to create inflation. They now have no way to get rid of the inflation now that they have more than they bargained for because if they raise rates to fight it, They cause a collapse based on the enormity of the debt. So the markets were wondering how the Bank of Japan was going to deal with this problem. And last night, they basically came out and said, we don't care about the weakness of the yen. We don't care about inflation. We're still committed to unlimited buying of Japanese government bonds to control the yield, to cap it at 0.25 basis points. It was an eight to one decision by the Bank of Japan. It was 9-0 as far as maintaining the guidelines on asset purchases, but I guess one loan dissenter didn't want to commit to unlimited yen printing to cap the yields, and that sent the yen tumbling. And in fact, if you look at what Kuroda was saying about inflation, he basically said he still doesn't think Japan has enough inflation. He admitted that he thinks inflation may hit 2%, but he doesn't think it's going to stick. And he specifically said that this cost push inflation is not sustainable, as if the inflation has nothing to do with all their money printing. It's just this pesky cost push thing going on. And it's not sustainable because he blamed it all on oil. And he said, well, the oil price is eventually going to fall. And so when it does, inflation is going to come back down. So in the meantime, we can keep on printing all the end they want. This guy is a madman, right? This is a perfect example of why modern monetary theory does not work. You're seeing this experiment fail right before your eyes. At some point, they are going to have to abandon this. They are going to have to raise rates and all hell is going to break loose because if they don't, a bigger hell is going to break loose as far as runaway inflation in Japan. This is a huge building story. It has massive implications. But as I said in my original podcast where I addressed this topic, it has broader implications for the dollar. 
because once the JGB throws in the towel and realizes they have to raise rates, that's going to set up a whole collapse of dominoes because then the dollar rally is going to reverse. The yen is going to soar because you have everybody short the yen now. When they do an about face and the shorts have to cover and yields start to spike and all that global liquidity is going to get sucked out of the system because this yen weakness is really what was responsible for the strength in U.S. stocks today. But for that, this bear market would have continued. Look at all these horrific earnings misses, all these blow-ups, these stocks making 52-week lows. The Japanese are basically saving the market, but it's a temporary reprieve. The market is still going down until the Fed caves. And when the Fed caves, the dollar is going to crash and gold is going to go ballistic. I want to wrap up the podcast, though, by talking a little bit about Joe Biden's press conference today out of the Oval Office, where he pledged another $44 billion in aid for the Ukraine freedom fighters. $44 billion. That's a hell of a lot of money. I mean, most countries don't even spend $44 billion on their military in a year, and we're just going to hand that out to the Ukraine. Now, where's that money going to come from? Because we have a massive budget deficit. Well, I guess we're just going to print it off, right? We're just going to call up the Federal Reserve. Biden's going to pick up the phone, and he's basically going to call pal and say, hey, can you run off some more of them 20s, right? I need about 44 billion worth so we can send them over to the Ukraine. We're not raising taxes. Biden's not telling Americans, hey, you need to pay higher taxes so you can chip in and support the freedom fighters over there in the Ukraine. No, it's not going to cost us anything. We're just going to give them 40 billion worth of funny money and they'll be able to spend it because everybody takes U.S. dollars because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. Hell, we had a $125 billion trade deficit last month. So the world didn't care about that. We'll just dump another 44 billion in for good measure. Nothing to worry about. Look, billions here, billions there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. This is massive inflation. This aid is inflationary. Again, not that I'm not sympathetic to their cause. Nobody is talking about what it costs to finance that war effort. And by the way, you know, I object to Biden's characterization of the Ukrainians as freedom fighters because they're not really fighting for freedom. They're fighting for independence. And, you know, sure, that's still a noble goal, right? Independence, nationalism. But let's not pretend this is about freedom. I already went over on a prior podcast, but I'll mention it again because not everybody listens to every podcast. But the Heritage Foundation comes out with their annual ranking of economic freedom, and they have a list of countries. And on that list of economic freedom, Russia ranks number 113. So, pretty low down on the list. It's under the category of mostly unfree, right? It's not the lowest category of repressed, right? That starts at number 146, right? They're mostly unfree. You want to know what the freest countries are. Singapore is one. Switzerland is two. Ireland is three. New Zealand is four, right? The United States, in case anybody is wondering, we clock in at number 25, pretty low on the list. We used to be near the top of that list. Now we rank 25, just below the United Kingdom. You know, once upon a time, we did fight a revolution, not only for independence, but freedom. We try to be free of the United Kingdom, and now we have less freedom than the United Kingdom because they're one notch above us. And believe me, even though the Ukrainians are fighting for freedom, Zelensky is no George Washington. This is not about freedom because if you look at that same list and you want to know where the Ukraine ranks, it's not above Russia, it's below. It's number 130 
on the list. So in theory, if Russia took over the Ukraine and imposed Russian rule on the Ukrainians, they would actually have more freedom based on the index of economic freedom, not less freedom. They have less freedom now. They would gain freedom if they were ruled by the Russians. But of course, they would no longer be independent. Just to give you an example of a couple of countries that according to the Heritage Foundation are higher on the economic freedom list, meaning the people are more free who live there, are Saudi Arabia and Uganda. Now, not that many people think of Saudi Arabia or Uganda as bastions of economic freedom, yet there's more freedom there than there is in the Ukraine. So let's not try to make this into something that it's not. But why does Biden want to make it about freedom? Well, because that's a more noble cause than just independence. And so that's how Biden is trying to generate the support for continued military aid in the form of billions and billions of dollars created out of thin air to the Ukrainians. And so the American public and the American politicians will be behind Biden because after all, freedom is a good thing. And if people want freedom, well, it's worth fighting for. Yes, freedom is worth fighting for. Independence, maybe not as much because I'd rather have more freedom and less independence, but that's just me. But apart from that, Biden also talked about the U.S. economy because he fielded some questions. And so we got some questions. And one of the things he mentioned was how strong the economy is. We have this super strong economy. Again, on a day that we just reported a 1.4% decline in GDP. No mention of that. Just continuing to pretend that the economy is strong. Again, pay no attention, right? These aren't the drones you're looking for, right? We got a great economy here. Don't worry about everything else, right? Just believe what I say. Close your eyes to everything else that you see. We've got this strong economy and the headlines backing them up. Again, I went over the New York Times headline. The New York Times, they obviously want Biden to be reelected so they can't tell the truth about the economy. So even though they get a negative GDP number, they have to spin that as somehow masking a broad, strong recovery because after all, we're only in a recession because of our massive trade deficit. And if we don't count the massive trade deficit, everything is great. So Biden, of course, completely failed to mention the GDP. Now, if the GDP numbers were good, of course, he would have talked about that the whole time. He would have specifically highlighted this good report card on the economy. Well, since the report card is an F, he doesn't want to acknowledge it at all. And so he's trying to ignore that report and just go ahead pretending that we've got A's, even though the report card has got an F. But he also talked about the need for tax hikes, but not on the middle class. No, no, no. We need more taxes on the rich. We need to tax people who are not paying their fair share. We have to raise taxes on those rich people, corporations who are not paying their fair share, when in reality, the corporations are already paying more than their fair share in that the corporations don't pay taxes anyway. It's the shareholders that pay taxes and they're being double taxed. And the rich by far pay the lion's share of the taxes in this country. They're overtaxed, not undertaxed in relation to the rest of the population. Many people pay no income taxes at all. Maybe half the country pays no income taxes. Now, yes, they pay social security taxes and I don't want to diminish that contribution, but we're talking about income taxes. And if you're trying to say that the rich are getting away with murder when it comes to income tax, they're not, they're being murdered and Biden wants to murder them even more. Now, another thing he did talk about too, which again, should be scary, had to do with the fact that 
Biden wants to go after the Russian oligarchs. He wants to seize their ill-gotten gains. Forfeiture laws, let's go take everything that they have because they're not entitled to it. The gains were ill-gotten. Really? Has a court determined that those gains were ill-gotten? Since when are Americans supposed to be in favor of just unilaterally going out there and seizing stuff because we claim the owners don't rightfully own the property? What about proving that the property was the result of some type of criminal activity in court before we seize it? What about due process? America is supposed to be a beacon of the rule of law. And the rule of law is all about due process. Governments just can't seize stuff. I mean, that's what kings do, right? Or despots, right? We're supposed to be free people. The government just can't take stuff by force. You need a court. You need a hearing. You need due process. The government has to prove something, and you have a chance to be confronted with the evidence and refute it. Due process, trial by jury, innocence until proven guilty. These are American principles. Why are we celebrating the fact that we're going to abandon those principles and just say, hey, here's a bunch of bad guys. We know they're bad. We don't have to prove they did anything wrong. We're just going to steal their stuff, right? Because that's what they're doing. So Americans should not be in favor of theft. I don't care if it's the government stealing. If they're taking property without due process of law, it's theft. (music) 